Hello, and welcome to the PhD Life Raft podcast. I'm Emma Brzezinski, and this episode, I am talking to the awesome Yulia Karpova. Yulia has just started her second PhD. Yes, you heard that right. Um, And in this episode, we talk about the journey that's taken her to this point and also how she's approaching things second time around. So I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hi. So lovely to have you here. I cannot wait for this conversation. I was telling someone um, I was going to be interviewing someone who was doing their second PhD and her jaw just dropped. (laughs) I was like, yes, second PhD. Yes, indeed. This is what we're talking about today. Um, But before we get into that, I'm going to ask, as I I ask everyone, for for you to tell us a bit about your story, your story into your first PhD indeed, um, and then what's brought you um, to this place now. Okay, thank you very much, Emma, for having me here. And indeed, I'm probably the first guest at your podcast who is doing uh, a second piece. Yes! Some of your listeners will wonder uh, if uh, it is even allowed uh, and <laughs> immediately I, I I run ahead and say, uh, in fact, sometimes and uh, in some places it is. And in some situations, it's actually pretty common. But I'll come to this later. Yes. So about my journey, in fact, I would like to start with a shout out to my mother who oh. did her PhD, uh, who defended her PhD when he was 12 years old, and she was writing it as a part-time PhD student. So we lived in a a provincial town uh, in in Russia, and again, presenting myself publicly as someone originating from Russia is uh, tricky, involves tricky feelings these Mm -hmm. days, Mm -hmm. but this is part of me, this is part of my story. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. my mother... uh, really had it difficult she completed this work uh in the context of poverty in the context of very patriarchal sexist atmosphere at her department and she convinced her very skeptical and very harsh supervisor who didn't even take her topic seriously somehow that it's worth pursuing and she defended uh, with um great appreciation from the committee. And while I was looking at how she was struggling, I decided as a teenager, no, I'm not going to do it. But here I am. Uh, So what's your mom's name? Tatiana. Tatiana. Tatiana, this one today is for you. She sounds amazing. She sounds amazing, right. She's my rock. She's my, my mother is my support. She supports my decisions. And she supported my decision to study art history when I was uh, a high school student and had many challenges, had certain health issues, which made it more difficult for me to complete the high school with excellent grades, which I did nonetheless. I decided to go into the career path that would not guarantee me stable income and any uh, financial stability, any um, 
definite prospects in life, but I was passionate about art history and my mother was um, on the same page. Uh, she supported me in that. So I did undergrad studies in Russia in art history. And by the time I was finishing, I, I could say this equals roughly master degree. Right, right. And uh, then uh, my mother moved by personal reasons to Hungary to Budapest, and I, I didn't plan to do this as well. But then I learned about a graduate university, a university where the program started at MA level, Central European University. Some of your listeners may have heard of it, or maybe even visited a. Um, stayed as a visiting scholar there or even completed a degree there so the university was founded so to say at the ruins of state socialism the idea of building of preparing the new political elites for the so-called post-socialist religion uh, for the countries which emerged after uh, 1989, but also intellectual elites and th critical thinkers. So quite ambitious goal. Mm -hmm. The reality was more complicated sometimes. There was some diversity between departments, but I'm very much indebted to my alma mater. So I moved there to complete an MA, one year MA program in history because there was no art history department. And then I stayed for a PhD, so I applied for a PhD. And this university is accredited in the US. So the program is very much US like but right. a little bit right. i would say simplified in some areas for example the comprehensive exam which people pass after the first uh, year of phd program is i think uh, uh, based on what i heard it's it's simpler so i went i didn't want to go back to russia because my housing situation was quite challenging i couldn't imagine finding a um, good job there so instead i decided to embark on a phd journey and i had a wonderful supporting supervisor an american scholar who uh, lived in um, who has been living in budapest for i guess approximately 30 years amazing person uh, professor marshall ziffert i am uh, forever indebted i i really owe her so much of uh, where i am and what i can do now so it took me six years, which is pretty <laughs> standard in American uh, measurements uh, mm -hmm. of the PhD. Mm -hmm. And I defended in 2015. Mm -hmm. So I'm blessed to um, have uh, defended my uh, dissertation in the still few years pre-COVID. And also, that's quite interesting. Now I know that... Uh, uh, viva is a term in the UK context yes. for the yes. defense. In yes. the in the American context, I guess that's dissertation defense. In uh, in Denmark, we say PhD Forsvars, so the same, uh, the defense. So it was a very good experience. I well, the PhD journey was challenging in many respects. Uh, several times I imagined that my dissertation will be rejected, no, forced that I would never complete it. Even if I do, someone, some mm -hmm. of the committee would not allow it to be 
uh, proceeded to the defense, but uh, all my colleagues knew already. When they heard me saying something like that, they said, okay, Yulia, we know, we know, we know, just go ahead and write. And so the defense was a very pleasant experience. Lovely. Friends came. My parents, my mother doesn't speak English, but my stepfather was there and my mother was waiting uh when uh, when the result is uh, announced and my friends were there it was amazing and after that uh followed the period of unemployment for a few months uh and then a year of trying to make ends meet uh, so i did several part-time university-related um, works as, uh, for example, assistant archivist and an archive, which is a part of the university, or as research assistants, as part-time lecturers. So I managed. I was happy that I could still stay in academia. I didn't have to quit after this very pleasant defense with summa cum laude and with hearing um, the words of appreciation and support. And after that, I, uh, by a very kind advice of my supervisor, Professor Ziefert, I applied for a Marie Curie scholarship uh, to spend two years in Aarhus, in Denmark, in the region of Jutland. And I succeeded. So I turned 30 in the summer of uh, 2016. And that thus started the um, second chapter, the new chapter uh, of my mm-hmm. life or the new chapter of my academic life. And I moved to Denmark and that was quite a cultural shock because at Central European University or CEU, um, it was very international atmosphere. There was no national majority. There were, of course, Hungarian faculty and students, but they were not the majority. Everyone spoke English with some accent, just like like myself. Uh, of course, there were American students as well. Usually, American students with some heritage, some ancestry in central, uh, in East Central Europe. Yes. Well, uh, in Denmark, I happen to be at the Department of Communication and Culture, uh, and there, the majority of uh, postdocs and professors were Danish. And it took me some time to get used to that, but it was also a welcoming atmosphere, even though I was a bit lonely because I was working on my book. It was not a dissertation book. It was um, 30% from the dissertation and a lot of additional research. So this is how I um, prepared my first monograph and then... I still needed to finish it up after this postdoc when I uh, returned back to Hungary. And in 2020, just before the pandemic, the book was published. Uh, Amazing. um, So the book is about Soviet uh, design, uh, and it looks at the different ideas and projects related to what is an ideal socialist object. And uh, I looked at the, the late socialist period, so from the 60s to the mid-80s, before the important uh, reforms under Gorbachev, uh, known as perestroika. I didn't um, go forward into that period because it's quite special and deserves mm-hmm. a monograph on its own. Anyway, uh, the book was quite well received and got some nice reviews. 
And at the same time, I really, I was passionate about going back to Denmark. And uh, thanks to the networks that I established during my first postdoc, I got a second postdoc already as a part of a project with uh, an art historian, with my colleague, Christian uh, Hanber, uh, an art historian. We researched the Cold War cultural diplomacy and specifically how Danes presented their art and design at exhibitions in the socialist bloc. Um, also, our um, Temper, uh, our chronological framework was similar to my books, so this from the 50s, 60s to the 80s. And then the postdoc ended uh, in the summer of 2022. And the last uh, month of the postdoc was, of course, the time which um, I would say that it really shaped my life, but that would be not very nice to say because it's not me who was, uh, of course, shaken by that. I mean, the war in Ukraine. Mm. And it was um, I when my Danish colleagues tried to support me while I was sitting in my office at Copen the University of Copenhagen. Um, this is where my second postdoc was. I would tell them it's very nice, it's but it's not me who, who needs support. It's it's Ukrainians, of course, and especially those who are who just who are displaced persons and they had the well, of course, not only I, I'm not only speaking about the academics who need support, but in this context, I was thinking about the, the people who had their careers interrupted in this uh, absolutely dramatic yes, yes, way. Yes. Uh, yes. And the field, the field of East European and um, Slavic and Soviet studies, of course, is undergoing very important conceptual changes. Um, and at the same time, uh, just to <laughs> get back to the track, I needed to take uh, to make important decisions, what I would like to do. And I followed up on one of the research interests which I developed a few years ago, namely medical design, design uh, specifically in the um, area of women's health. And uh, it so happened that I did not manage to secure any further academic position in Denmark, and I had a postdoc offer from Sweden. So I could go for my third postdoc to Sweden. But by a number of personal and professional reasons, I would uh, very much uh, preferred rather to stay in Denmark. So I had this dilemma, Denmark versus academia, either stay in Denmark and quit and try to find a job beyond academia. And that would be challenging because I'm not fluent in Danish and I have almost zero experience beyond academia. Or I try to solve this dilemma in some other way. And so the second PhD very kindly offered to me uh, by the University of Southern Denmark, the Department of Design and Communication. That was my solution of the dilemma. Of course, I applied and um, I asked them. Basically, I wanted to join a fantastic project about design and body, um, design as somatic expertise, launched by a, a professor of the department. And I contacted him and said, I see you have this wonderful project and you are looking for a PhD student who would write about body and design in the context of medicine. And it sounds like what I want to do. This is my passion. I really want to do this research. I want to have um, this opportunity. That would be fantastic. But there is a little problem. I already have a PhD from 2015 and I did two postdocs. So may I even apply? And he replied, 
you may in fact because your PhD is in history and this is design studies it's a different discipline but don't expect much because you're overqualified so this nice. is the what I heard so much before I said of course of course you know I know my place but well I ended up joining the department and um, yeah strange however it is I decided for myself it was a difficult choice couple of sleepless nights a lot of discussion with colleagues but I told myself, oh, it's not a step backward. It is a step to the side, not even a step aside, but it is a step otherwise mm. still within my career. And I also talked about it. I Well, I sometimes I meet up and have a coffee with uh, Professor Zippert, my PhD supervisor from Budapest. And of course, she always wants to know how uh, I am doing. And I had to confess, and I was so frightened. Imagine telling your PhD supervisors you're embarking on another PhD. And she was so supportive. She told me, you know what? She told me, I know many colleagues from Germany, and what they have is habilitation. So this is uh, another degree after the PhD. So think of it as your habilitation. This sounds awesome. We love her. We love her. And um, so you are doing then your second PhD. So this podcast generally is all about how to get through the PhD. We've already done that once. So I, I, I'm just wondering if you could share with us then what, how when you're coming into it for the second time what what did you learn from that first time around which you are now applying and how is it different this second time around yes it is different uh in quite a number of ways well during my first phd which was as i uh, mentioned quite long i learned a great deal i learned um well, I learned to organize myself, to prioritize, mm. well, all these things that people doing the PhD learn. I learned to communicate my findings and my doubts and reconsider my ideas to rewrite many times. I learned international network and I learned finding out where to apply to which conferences I would rather invest in, in what conference trips I should invest my yes. time. Yes. So that was a great deal of learning. Yes. And I also learned already, well, after the defense, looking back at that, that experience, I felt that it's so important to be kind to yourself. It sounds extremely banal. And, no, it does not. Uh, everyone sound. says that, but this is true uh, because I was so harsh on myself. Mm. I would mm. be hiding in the bathroom crying i would be leaving the phd office i would cry because i hated what i just written mm. so mm. much because i couldn't take a distance i was so tired i just mm. Uh, mm. lost the touch of the objective reality of my writing which was gradually improving and by the time i was writing up it was it was decent for that stage, but I need also to say that in my first PhD, I started it. I was twenty three, so I, mm. uh, at the risk of uh, sounding in, in, 
infantilizing, infantilizing, I can say I was a baby PhD. I wouldn't say it about someone else who starts PhD at a very young age, but I was a baby PhD. And I really, I was growing up, I think I was really becoming a proper adult uh, as I was moving forward in my PhD. Uh, now it is, of course, it is different. Now I allow myself, considering myself a responsible adult, a proper adult. Now I'm 36. And also some of the fellow PhD students in the department are considerably older. They are closer to the age, uh, to my first PhD supervisor. Because as I also learned from your podcast, from many interviews, some people have different um, arrangement of tasks and mm. engagements in life mm. some of these PhD students they had a long career and at some point they decided that now I want to learn something I want to accomplish this academic task so mm. it really helped me because I felt okay now so many people in mid-30s mid to late 30s have real adult careers and i'm going back to the phd but thinking of the phd not as a age related or age certain age stage uh, related experience but as a journey that you can decide to choose at any point of your life uh, this is very helpful Oh, I love it. That's going. That's going on. That's becoming my new strapline. It's a journey you can take at any age, and I, I love that. That sense of, as you say, there will be people who are much older and people much younger, and coming at it in a in a phase of your life that is right for you. And I love, and I love that you're looking back and going, okay, so I was a, quite a different person then in that first PhD. And I also love that you're talking about these these um the skills. I, because it, it kind of is what we talk about a lot on the podcast, the kind of the, the skills that are beyond the discipline specific skills. So all those skills that you talked about in terms of the way in which you're organizing your time, the project management, managing yourself and your emotions, because it's an emotional journey. Um, all of that, all of that learning then it's absolutely applicable, even though you're now in a different department doing a different subject. Love it. Love it. So I am aware of time. And um, we always ask. There's there's so much more. There's there's a few there's a few more podcast episodes. I feel in terms of your story, um, as you said, in terms of being an international student, um, all all that that means. But I'm going to ask my really reductive question now. In terms of, do you have any top tips? A top tip or top tips from the perspective of someone who has done it already and is now doing it for the second time? To share with people okay um the top tip there are um, many top tips um that one can give and i heard many brilliant ones uh in your uh, podcast episodes the top tip i would give to someone who is considering uh, applying for a phd is to learn uh, what are the specific requirements and specific structure? Because now I, I uh, direct this tip to an international student and especially to those who have the, the type of a PhD, which is called um, aspirantura, which is very typical in many countries, how to say it better, that used to belong to the Soviet Union. And some of these uh, academics, they 
actually aspire to have a Western PhD or uh, the kind of the PhD uh, of uh, of what we think about when we say PhD. So for them, I would really recommend uh, learning about the differences of different PhDs because I had an American PhD in, in Hungary and now I'm doing a Danish PhD in Denmark and they are quite different right. in many respects and both are quite different from the British PhD. So uh, this is very important to orient yourself what format suits better your time frame, your expectations and your goals. And for those who are at the PhD, no, no matter if it's your second uh, or, or your first, like, Western um, PhD, or if it's your <laughs> the only PhD, I think um, networking is so important. And as so many of your guests said, uh, reaching for help, mm-hmm. for um, support, for, for peer feedback, and also learning early on what kind of services are there at your university. Also, depending on the country you are in, uh, what uh, resources are there for support? So it's okay to ask for help. It's not a sign of weakness. I had this even at the beginning of this journey. I thought, I have been there. I must be so smart. I, I should know how to do it. I should have no issues at all. But I did have questions and I did have issues and I asked for support. So this is very um uh, very um, crucial, I think. I love it, and and you have spoken so fondly in this in this interview about your colleagues and your supervisors, and th- this real sense of of those kind of meaningful connections that you have made through this journey. Um, oh, Julia, thank you so much for all of that, um, and I wish you all the very very best. <laughs> Do you get called double doctor or something like that at the end of it? <laughs> double doctor sounds nice. Thank you very much. Um, it was such a pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you so much. And thank you all for listening.